This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, Lee Camp, The Progressive, The Onion Radio News, The Young Turks, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin, with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Onion News Network. Today in Texas and in Washington, the White House and Rick Perry had a political fight to the death and a dramatic down-to-the-wire final-hour fight at the Supreme Court over whether or not Rick Perry's Texas would be allowed to kill a foreign citizen who the state of Texas was holding prisoner. The man is a citizen of a foreign country. He was convicted of a murder in Texas. He was never allowed any assistance from his home country. If you as an American are, are, are in a foreign country and you are picked up and arrested, you're charged with a serious crime, the U.S. government has the right to intervene on your behalf to try to help you out. You don't get immunity if you have done something wrong, of course, but you at least get help from the United States because you are a United States citizen. That's not only a principle that all Americans implicitly count on if we ever even think about leaving the country, it's also law. Our country signed something called the Vienna Convention that says we expect to be able to help Americans arrested in foreign countries. And... We will let foreign citizens arrested here get help from their governments, too. It is an international treaty. We are signed onto it. Congress ratified it. It is law. But not in Texas. Not in Rick Perry's Texas. In 2005, the George W. Bush administration ordered states that they needed to comply with this law. Texas, under Rick Perry, said no. The U.S. Supreme Court then weighed in and said the only way to force a state like Texas to follow this law here would be for Congress to take action. And so with a foreign citizen on death row in Texas, the Obama administration took the very rare step of the federal government wading into a state criminal case, not over the issue of whether or not the prisoner was innocent or guilty, but over whether or not Texas could kill him without ever letting him get help from his home government. John Bellinger, a lawyer who served the State Department in the George W. Bush administration, arguing in this case, quote, it should be obvious to anyone, including officials in Texas, that if Americans, including Texans, are arrested and detained in some other country, and the United States complains that they have not been given their consular notice, it will be pointed out to us that the United States does not comply with our own international obligations on this. It cuts the legs out from under the State Department, he said to make arguments on behalf of Americans who are detained abroad. The White House, the Justice Department, the State Department all weighed in and asked the Supreme Court to intervene, to delay the execution in Texas here for a few months until Congress would have the chance to act on legislation pending that would make Texas follow the law here. But one hour before the prisoner in Texas was scheduled to be killed, the conservative majority of the Supreme Court declined to postpone the execution. It was a five to four decision. Governor Rick Perry also could have granted a stay here, a 30 day stay. As of this morning, he said he was undecided on the matter. In the end, he too declined to step in. Texas killed Umberto Leal, the man in question in this case, at 7 p.m. Eastern time tonight. The politics of killing prisoners in America have played a role in presidential politics in the past. During then-Governor George W. Bush's campaign in 2000, and in then-Governor Bill Clinton's campaign before that, too. 
One of the issues that has dogged Governor Bush throughout the campaign is the number of execution in his state, Texas. Tonight's executions are even more controversial because a lawyer for one of the condemned men says his client is mentally retarded. This has happened before. In 1992, then-Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton refused to stop the execution of a man so mentally impaired that he did not even know he was about to be executed. Both governors, Clinton and Bush, as presidential candidates, had to face questions about whether they did their due diligence on executions that happened in their states. So too did Alberto Gonzalez when George W. Bush nominated him to be the country's attorney general. Mr. Gonzalez wrote the execution briefings, emphasis on brief, for the first 60 or so of George W. Bush's 152 approved Texas executions. But this year, this all emerges now, today, at the Supreme Court and in Texas, not just in the heat of presidential politics, but in the midst of a huge political and practical and moral mess over lethal injection in a number of states all around the country. Well, folks, it's an exciting time in Georgia right now. Why, you ask? Is it the 29th annual Greased Piglet Toss? Nope, that's in August. Is it the Monster Truck Chicken Fry Shoot-Off? Nope, September. Then it must be the Shania Twain Grits and Hollerin' Turkey Swallow Wrestling Match. Nope, that's on hiatus on account of they gotta clean out the turkey swallows. It's actually an exciting time in Georgia because they're gearing up to execute another man. This execution is super thrilling because it's an innocent man. His name is Troy Davis. He was arrested when he was 20 years old for killing a police officer and has spent nearly 20 years in prison. But you're not stupid. You've seen Law and Order. All they need, all that needs to happen is Richard Belzer get some fingerprints off a gun and boom, case closed. But problem is, Troy Davis's case, there's no weapon. Well, you just get iced tea to get some DNA off the other evidence and boom, case closed. Problem is, there's no physical evidence. Well, you just get a bunch of teary-eyed witnesses to say how horrible it was to see Troy Davis kill a man. Problem is, seven of the nine witnesses have recanted and said they were pressured by police at the time to say Davis did it. On top of that, one of the two remaining witnesses was a suspect in the initial case. On top of that, new witnesses implicate someone other than Troy Davis. Three times Davis has been up for execution, and three times the courts have decided to stop it. Now comes round four, and the governor of Georgia, Nathan Deal, is hoping he'll finally get the win. He'll finally get this annoying, innocent man out of his fucking hair, and he'll be able to thank the Lord Almighty that thou shalt not kill is just a recommendation, kind of like floss every day, or beer before liquor, never sicker. 
Now you may be thinking, well, we gotta stop this state-funded murder. We need to write and email that governor. We need to put up Twitter posts and Facebook notes to save Troy Davis. But no, don't do that, because there are more important things you could be doing. You could be playing Angry Birds or watching SportsCenter, puffy painting your underwear, or betting on who will win this episode of Robot Cupcake Wars. You could be reading up on how January Jones uses spicy food to make her nipples perky, or teaching your bunny rabbit to do a backflip because that viral video won't film itself. You could be doing any one of these things, so forget about Troy Davis because sending an email or twittering to save a life is inconvenient, alright? And making a phone call to tell a governor to stop a murder is awkward. So with any luck, you'll forget about Troy Davis in a minute and we can all pretend this conversation never happened, like the time your grandmother mentioned masturbation at the dinner table. And besides, evidence is for pussies. Only weak-ass mouth breathers need evidence of a crime in order to execute someone. Yeah, it makes it easier, but it's not necessary. It's like opening a bottle of fine wine. Sure, a corkscrew makes it easier, but you can also just smash the bottle on the table and lick the shards. Anyway, I'm Lee Camp, and that's your moment of clarity for today. Go to nodeathpenalty.org for more details on Troy Davis. The phone number for Governor Deal's office is 404-656-1776. Politely tell him not to murder Troy Davis. You can also tweet at Governor Deal. You can say things like, You have a busy schedule, so why not save some time and not execute an innocent man? Thanks. Governor Deal will like that because he loves attention. Life and day is more than you'll say. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five dollars a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Tonight in Texas, the potential Republican presidential candidate Rick Perry declined to intervene to stop an execution, an execution that the State Department, the White House, and four members of the United States Supreme Court said should be stopped. The man who was killed was a citizen of a foreign country whose government was not allowed to help him because of the threat that Americans traveling abroad will also now start being denied the assistance of our government if we're arrested. This was a state criminal matter that quite literally became a federal case. Even the George W. Bush administration had said that Texas should not do this. But Texas Governor Rick Perry went ahead with it. The man was killed tonight, despite the fact that Governor Perry could have stopped it. And that, combined with Mr. Perry's evident presidential aspirations, puts this issue right back in the fray of national politics, at a time when the death penalty is frankly already in chaos. States' ability to kill their prisoners is more in chaos and, frankly, more in jeopardy than it has ever been during the course of my lifetime. The 
primary way that states kill prisoners is lethal injection. In fact, this year, that's the only way states have killed prisoners. Lethal injection drugs vary slightly from state to state, but almost all of them used to use, alone or in combination, a drug made by an Illinois company called Hospira. Until a couple of years ago, Hospira made its lethal injection drug here in the U.S. But when it moved its uh, manufacturing operations to Italy in 2009, Hospira stopped making the lethal injection drug. The drug was a teeny tiny part of Hospira's overall business, and the company decided that making it was no longer worth their time or trouble. It became trouble to make it once they moved to Italy, because you know what Italians hate? Italians really hate the death penalty. Hospira's decision to stop manufacturing this drug created a sudden shortage of the lethal injection drug for the 34 states that still kill their prisoners. And the problem was that the drug goes bad. It spoils. You need to constantly refresh your stock. But without new manufacturing, new stock was not readily available. Then countries like Germany asked their pharmaceutical industries to not sell that same drug to us because we use it to kill people here. The UK decided the same thing. Some other drug manufacturers in other countries, uh, one in India and another in Denmark, also started refusing on their own to sell lethal injection drugs to America. The maker of a drug that Ohio plans to start using for lethal injections is asking that state, along with Oklahoma, to halt the practice. Oklahoma has already started using the sedative. It's called pentobarbital to execute three inmates because there is a shortage of the drug they previously used. But the drug maker, Lundbeck Incorporated, says the drug was not intended to be used for lethal injections. With the primary supplier of lethal injection drugs no longer manufacturing them and nobody else stepping up to do so, or at least to ship them to the U.S. once they had, states and prison systems all across this country sort of panicked. At least 13 of them reported current or anticipated shortages of the thing they used to kill their prisoners. The executions continued through this last winter and spring, but not without headlines warning of an accidental and unanticipated end to the death penalty in America because we no longer had the means to kill people by our chosen methods. The situation got so absurd that at one point in the fall, before Britain banned the export of lethal injection drugs, the BBC ran a headline that made you ask, what country is this? What century is this? The headline was this. Lethal injection drug sold from UK driving school. An unlicensed company was selling lethal injection drugs out of a driving school in West London to corrections departments in the United States of America. At least one state, Arizona, reportedly killed a prisoner using drugs imported from the driving school. The federal government responded by seizing the illegally imported lethal injection drugs in at least three states. Clearly, the old lethal injection drug was getting harder and harder to buy and harder and harder to hold on to without it being confiscated by the feds. So a number of states decided to stop using it altogether, stop trying to use it altogether. They decided to switch to a new kind of lethal injection drug, one that is used all the time, only not on humans. It's what veterinarians use to euthanize animals. Ohio was the first to use it to kill a prisoner in March. A week later, Texas made the switch. And now one of the companies that makes that drug is advising American states that it should not be used for lethal injections either. It is chaos. It is chaos on one of the most morbid issues in modern American politics. And now it is chaos on that issue with presidential politics mixed in too. Love of mine, someday you will die, but I'll be close behind, I'll follow you. 
into the dark No blinding light Or tunnels to gates of white Just our hands clasped so tight Waiting for the hint of a spark If heaven and hell decide That they both are satisfied and Illuminate the nose On their vacancy signs If there's no one beside you When your soul embarks Then I'll follow you into the dark you may have heard of the prison industrial complex. Well, now there's a new report that spells it all out. Called Gaming the System, the report by the Justice Policy Institute shows just how pernicious is the privatization of our prison system. Today, two huge companies, Corrections Corporation of America and GEO, which used to be called Wackenhut, run the majority of private prisons in this country and incarcerate 129,000 people. The number of prisoners held by private companies has jumped 353% just in the last 15 years. It's one of the only booming businesses in America. Last year, Corrections Corp. raked in $1,670,000,000. The Wacken Hunters brought in almost a billion. These companies sure know how to milk the cash cow. In the last five election cycles, the private prison industry has shelled out almost a million dollars to federal candidates and, get this, six million dollars to state politicians since they get the lion's share of their profits from contracts with state governments. In 2010 alone, they spent two million dollars on these state and local candidates who, not surprisingly, favor long sentences and privatization. For the companies and for the right-wing candidates, it's a cozy arrangement. For the rest of us, it's costly and it's cruel. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Hey, David Pakman here, host of The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com, check out our show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of The David Pakman Show, all at davidpakman.com. such great. Suspicious and charming and vicious, oh darling. You're a million ways, oh darling. You're a million ways to be cool. Hamburglar urges a Senate subcommittee to rubble, rubble, rubble. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Hamburger advocate and convicted felon Hamburglar denounced a prison system he called Robble, Robble, Robble today as he testified before the Senate subcommittee on penal reform. Hamburglar, convicted in 1998 of breaking and entering a McDonald's hamburger franchise in South Beloit, Wisconsin, and currently serving a sentence of three to five years, made this impassioned plea before being interrupted by U.S. Senator Bob Smith of Rhode Island. Certainly there is room for improvement in our prison system, but I would hardly call the current situation robble. After delivering his message to the subcommittee, Hamburglar was promptly placed in chains and returned to prison to serve out the remainder of his sentence in solitary confinement. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio Media. Oh, wow. Eddie, you okay? You okay? 
So it turns out that Illinois will punish citizens the same way that they punish rapists if they videotape police officers without their permission beforehand. Well, of course. I mean, if you're going to try to tape the police while they're doing their job, that's very dangerous. Very dangerous. You know, you should be classified in the same category as rapists, obviously. Absolutely. You could serve four to 15 years in prison if you're filming a police officer without their permission. And, you know, uh, a recent story having to do with this situation uh, involves a woman by the name of Tiawanda Moore. And uh, during a domestic dispute with someone that she was living with, her boyfriend at the time, uh, they called the cops. The cops came in and they questioned both of them separately and they questioned Tiawanda uh, in a room privately. It was just her and one male police officer. She claims the police officer groped her, uh, touched her breast, and then uh, passed his home phone number off to her. Well, she wanted to complain about that, obviously, right? So she goes to the internal uh, affairs officials for the Chicago Police Department and as she's talking to them about it, uh, they're basically trying to intimidate, she claims they're trying to intimidate her, uh, pass her off and just say like oh don't file any complaints you know you're probably gonna lose this is gonna look really bad for you so it, she got extremely frustrated with the situation and she started taping the conversation with her phone well they didn't like that so now um, a prosecutor is taking her to court over this and she faces four to fifteen years in jail because she turned that uh, recorder on without permission beforehand okay now this is great because uh, first of all, uh, Illinois and Massachusetts are the only states that say that if you are recording uh, them uh, without uh, their permission, uh, police officers, uh, that you can get in trouble, right? And it's a pretty serious crime. Now, it, earlier, Illinois had actually ruled that if you are recording them where they have no expectation of privacy, they're out there doing their job, etc., that that was okay. Well, the cops in Illinois didn't like that, so they actually explicitly got a law passed that said, even if they have no expectation of privacy, it doesn't matter. You can't ever record the cops. Okay. And the great irony of this is that they're using like a, a, a wiretapping statute from back in the day. Like they're saying, oh, you're wiretapping the cops, and that's totally illegal. But what's hilarious and ironic about that is now our federal government is allowed to do warrantless wiretapping. Yeah. So the authorities can wiretap you without a court order at all. But if you try to actually record the authorities in public while they're doing their job, when they, you pay their bills, remember they're government I workers. I know, that's the part of it that really gets to me. The fact that then these you are public, public employees, you are not allowed to hold them accountable and there is no transparency. And they're you, allowed to do whatever they want, you can't record them. And if you do, you're going to jail. Right. You're going to jail for four to fifteen years. Now remember the Constitution is the exact opposite. The United States Constitution says that they could not you know, do an unreasonable search and seizure of you without getting a court order, without getting a warrant. We turn that on its head. How, you know, you trying to figure out if the cops are doing their job? That's it. You're going to jail. Okay? And by the way, have they uh, prosecuted the guy who groped her? Nope. Absolutely not. They're still looking into it. So they get back to you on that, okay? Uh, but you, you're going to jail for complaining to the cops about a cop that groped you in the middle of an incredibly traumatic event, by the way. So, oh, are you okay? Oh, seeked it. You know, so that's the cops in Illinois for you, and uh, <laughs> that's the crazy topsy turvy world we live in. I feel so helpless now. My guitar is not around, and I'm struggling with the xylophone to make these feelings sound. And I'm remembering you singing and bringing you to life, and it's raining out the window. And today it looks like night. You haven't written.
to me in a week I wonder why that is Are you too nervous to be lovers? Friendships room with just one kiss I watched you very closely And I saw you look away Your eyes are either gray or blue I'm never close enough to say Prisoners in California are on a hunger strike right now to protest the inhumane conditions in the so-called security housing units, or SHOES. These are extremely punitive facilities where prisoners are kept in isolation for 23 hours a day indefinitely. Some have been in the SHOE for 20 years. Amnesty International and the UN Human Rights Commission have both denounced conditions in such units as gratuitously harsh and not meeting minimal standards. Two dozen prisoners began their hunger strike at the Pelican Bay State Prison on July 1st, and prisoners in other places in California and even Ohio have joined the hunger strike. One prisoner at Pelican Bay, John R. Martinez, says he's on strike to protest the denial of our human rights via the use of perpetual solitary confinement. He also said he was protesting the practice of bribing prisoners to become snitches as a condition of their release from the shoe. The inhumane treatment of prisoners in the U.S. has been a scandal for many years now, a scandal that the corporate media doesn't want to pay attention to, and a lot of citizens don't care about either. But we should, because it reflects so poorly on all of us. So please support the Pelican Bay hunger strikers and send a letter to the California Department of Corrections demanding more humane treatment. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. reason that you should be afraid of all this is because of the warnings we're getting from the only people who have even a little bit of an idea what's going on. This New Yorker story involves some of the civilian people who know what's going on, and I'll get to that in a minute. But some of the elected people who know what's going on are doing their darndest to warn us. What's interesting about that, too, is how often have we said on this program that we desperately need those people to act, right? What do we need to do to get those people to act? What's funny is they seem to be trying their best, the ones who care about this, to let us know enough information so that they can get our help acting. It's almost as if we're powerless and we're looking to them and they're powerless and they're looking to us. The latest example of this happened the other day during um, testimony over the Patriot Act renewal. Oregon Senator, Democrat from Oregon, Ron Wyden, and uh, Colorado Senator Udall got on the Senate floor, and Wyden made some statements that you need to pay attention to, folks. 
You need to understand how completely unprecedented what Wyden said is. Now, just so you know, it comes a year after similar you know, statements, although he went farther, that's why I call it unprecedented, similar statements by Senator Russ Feingold. All these people sit on the, you know, very small intelligence committee. One of the um, misunderstandings many Americans have about their Congress people or their senators is that those people are all in the know. They're not in the know. The only people who know the secrets that the government you know, employees and the things that they're doing, especially concerning things like the Patriot Act, are the people who sit on the Intelligence Committee. Now, people who sit on the Intelligence Committee are tried and true, trusted members. They've been there for a while. They rarely change. They're the kind of people that, you know, the National Security Agency and the CIA and all those people can rely on to protect their secrets. These are insider people, right? These are not fly-off-the-cuff radicals. And yet, for more than a year now... Several of them have been trying to warn us that we really need to understand what's going on. And they can't tell us. This is what Senator Ron Wyden said on the Senate floor the other day. I've been following politics for more than 30 years. I've never heard anyone get up there and say anything like this. He said, quote, when the American people find out how their government has secretly interpreted the Patriot Act, they will be stunned and they will be angry. And they will be asking senators, did you know what this law actually permits? Why didn't you know before you voted on it? The fact is, Wyden said, that anyone can read the plain text of the Patriot Act, and yet many members of Congress have no idea how the law is being secretly interpreted by the executive branch, because that interpretation is classified. Members of the public have no access to the executive branch's secret legal interpretations, so they have no idea what their government thinks this law means. He said, while Americans recognize that government agencies will sometimes rely on secret sources and methods to collect intelligence information, Americans also expect that these agencies will operate at all times within the boundaries of publicly understood law. He says, I've served on the Senate Intelligence Committee for 10 years, and I don't take a backseat to anyone when it comes to the importance of protecting genuinely sensitive sources and collection methods. He says, but the law itself should never be secret. Voters have a need and a right to know what the law says and what their government thinks the text of the law means so that they can then decide whether the law is appropriately written and ratify or reject decisions that their elected officials make on their behalf. He says, quote, Government officials must not be allowed to fall into the trap of secretly reinterpreting the law in a way that creates a gap between what the public thinks the law says and what the government secretly claims that it says. When the public eventually finds out that government agencies have been rewriting surveillance laws in secret, the result is invariably a backlash and an erosion of public confidence in these governmental agencies. End quote. Wyden and uh, Udall tried to insert an amendment to the Patriot Act renewal, the amendment would have required the government to, quote, publicly disclose the United States government's official interpretation of the USA Patriot Act, end quote. The government argues that it can't do this because their interpretation of the Patriot Act is secret. Wyden ended the speech by saying, that he believes that the people have a right to discuss this stuff and that there needs to be public debate over the trade-offs between freedom and security. Now, this harkens back to a similar effort by another member of the Intelligence Committee a year ago. Former Senator Russ Feingold, when he was senator in 2010, made a similar plea to the people 
trying to say as much as he could say without violating his own oaths of secrecy to warn us that bad things are happening behind the scenes. He was talking specifically about a part of the Patriot Act um, called Section 215. Here's what he said in February 2010 on the floor of the U.S. Senate, quote, Section 215 has been misused. I cannot elaborate, but I believe that the public deserves some information about this. I and others have also pressed the administration to declassify some basic information about the use of Section 215, and it is declined. We must find a way to have an open and honest debate about the nature of these governmental powers, while still protecting national security secrets, and under current conditions, that simply isn't possible. End quote. Folks, there comes a time with the question of secrecy where the whole thing begins to be like you know a serpent devouring its own tail where there becomes a feedback loop where the very secrecy of everything prevents us from knowing how secret it is we can't tell you how secret it is because it's a secret and as i said we might all feel much more comfortable with this if the general conception that americans have that our senators and congressmen at least know what's happening was true, but they don't. The very few that are allowed some of this information, those on the Intelligence Committee, aren't allowed to tell us about it, but they're doing their best to do anything they can. Some of them. That's part of what was so depressing about this whole debate over the renewal of the Patriot Act and how the people who are pushing, you know, as quickly as we can, we have to get it, you know, taken care of ASAP or, you know, more buildings will fall down the way that they're treating people who question anything. And what it has done in a wonderful way is shown, I hope, Democrats out there that most of their you know, leaders are no different than the Republican leaders who did the same thing back when George W. Bush was pleading for this sort of speed in renewing things like the Patriot Act. Guys like Harry Reid slammed guys like Rand Paul for trying to at least you know, slow down and talk about this thing. Harry Reid basically said, you know, he wants to help terrorists. Sounds like it's right out of the George W. Bush administration playbook, doesn't it? Salon columnist and liberal Glenn Greenwald wrote a piece uh, recently about this since the Patriot Act was uh, renewed, where he was slamming Democrats to high heaven for their hypocrisy on this. Here's what he wrote from the beginning of the piece. It's entitled, by the way, The Patriot Act and Bipartisanship. Quote, Several days ago, he says, I noted that Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell had agreed to a four-year extension of the most controversial provisions of the Patriot Act, a bill Democrats everywhere once claimed to revile without a single reform. He says, despite the long and documented history of its abuse and despite Obama's previously claimed desire to reform it. He says, tonight a cloture vote was taken in the Senate on the four-year extension and it passed by a vote of 74 to 8. He says, the law that was once the symbolic shorthand for the evil Bush-Cheney post-9-11 radicalism just received a vote in favor of its four-year reform-free extension by a vote of 74 to 8. He says, only resolutions to support Israel command more lopsided majorities. He lists the eight senators who voted against cloture. Independent Senator Bernie Sanders, Democrats Jeff Merkley, Mark Begich, Max Baucus, and John Tester, and GOP Senators Lisa Murkowski, Rand Paul, and Dean Heller. He says GOP Senator Mike Lee announced that he'd vote no, but missed the vote due to inclement weather. He goes, Senator Paul, along with Senator Tester, took the lead in speaking out against the excesses and abuse of the Patriot Act and the vital need for reforms. He says, quote, 
But what's most notable isn't the vote itself, but the comments made afterwards. He says Senator Paul announced that he was considering using delaying tactics to hold up passage of the bill in order to extract some reforms. Paul's announcement of his delaying intentions provoked this fear-mongering, terrorism-exploiting, bullying threat from the Democrat Senate Intelligence Committee chair, Dianne Feinstein. Quote, I think it would be a huge mistake, Feinstein told reporters, if somebody wants to take on their shoulders not having provisions in place which are necessary to protect the United States at this time, that's a big, big weight to bear. End quote. By the way... Dan speaking now. That's nothing compared to the slam Harry Reid did, where he basically said that Rand Paul wanted to protect the rights of terrorists to get guns. Uh, but Greenwald continues, quote, in other words, Paul and the other dissenting senators better give up their objections and submit to a quick Patriot Act passage or else they'll have blood on their hands from the terrorist attack that they will cause. He says that, of course, was the classic Bush Cheney tactic for years to pressure Democrats into supporting every civil liberties destroying measure the Bush White House demanded. He says, and now we have the Democrats ensconced in power, using it just as brazenly and shamelessly. He finishes the piece by saying, quote, So when they were out of power, the Democrats reviled the Patriot Act and constantly complained about fear-mongering tactics and exploitation of the terrorist threat being used to stifle civil liberties and privacy concerns. Now that they're in power and a Democratic administration is arguing for extension of the Patriot Act, they use fear-mongering tactics and exploitation of the terrorist threat to stifle civil liberties and privacy concerns. End quote. Now, I was going to say some unabashedly good things about um, Rand Paul, the recently elected um, Republican senator from Kentucky, the son of Ron Paul, the congressman from Texas. Um, and I'm a fan of Ron Paul, just like I'm a fan of Dennis Kucinich. Any one of these people who stands up for the Constitution on either side of the political spectrum gets my support. Rand is a much more frustrating guy to try to support because he'll do something that you favor and then he'll quickly turn around and do something you don't favor, like the other day when he said something about people who go to these political rallies. I mean, I, I don't even know how to phrase it. It was so contradictory to what you think a person with some sort of libertarian leanings would have. I couldn't even make sense of it. Basically saying something to the effect of, though, um, that your right to assemble should be very limited. That if you go listen to speeches by some radical, maybe you need to be investigated. But he deserves all of our praise for the way he stood up on the Patriot Act. And Harry Reid, Democratic you know, leader of the Senate from Nevada, slammed him down with what the Nixon administration would have called extreme prejudice. During the Bush years, we fought hard against radical ideas, like some enshrined in their signature bill after 9-11, the Patriot Act. But now some of what used to be considered radical departures from American tradition have become normalized, even hardly noticed. For example, quietly and quickly, Congress reauthorized the Patriot Act last week, just before ducking out for the holiday weekend. The Senate passed the bill 72 to 23. The House followed suit just hours later, passing it 250 to 153. All in all, more than 80 Democrats supported the bill. What happened? 
I thought Democrats didn't like this bill under Bush. Did something change? In fact, one of the bill's biggest opponents was a Republican. Senator Rand Paul fought to amend the bill last week to take out some of the civil liberty abuses in it. And he got hammered for it by none other than Harry Reid. Unless the senator from Kentucky stops standing in the way, our law enforcement will no longer be able to use some of the most critical tools they need to counter terrorists and combat terrorism. If they cannot use these tools, tools that identify and track terrorist suspects, it could have dire consequences for our national security. Now that's quite a switch from how Senator Reid felt about people who fought against the Patriot Act during the Bush years. Think of what happened 20 minutes ago in the United States Senate. We killed the Patriot Act. Senator Reid seemed quite proud to oppose the Patriot Act back then. So why is he one of its biggest supporters today? Has the bill actually changed? Or has the Democratic Party changed? We really know, want to know what happened. And that's what we're trying to figure out tonight. So to help me do that, we're going to uh, bring in Jeffrey Rosen. He's a law professor at George Washington University. He's also the legal affairs editor at the New Republic. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, let me start with that fundamental question. Is there something significantly different about this Patriot Act as opposed to the one during the Bush years? Absolutely not. In fact, the three most controversial provisions of the Patriot Act were reauthorized with barely any debate. These are the provisions that authorize roving wiretaps, the infamous Section 215, which allows the government to seize any tangible thing, data, cell phone records, what have you, merely by saying that it's relevant to a terrorism investigation. And then finally, these secret national security letters that also allow the government to seize any data. And if you receive this letter, you're not even allowed to mention it to anyone else and uh, investigation in 2007 found serious and widespread abuse of these letters it found there were 140,000 of them issued between 2003 and 2005 many with people with no connection to terrorism these are the very provisions that Harry Reid and other Democrats properly denounced during the Bush years and this past week as you said with barely any debate the same people just voted to reauthorize these terrible provisions you know throughout this entire time for what's been about 10 years now I've never understood why this is is remotely constitutional. So without a court order, they're going and telling people, okay, I want to have your records, whether they're going to a business, whether they're going to a doctor's office. Th these national security letters, for example, that, you know, part of what you mentioned, how is that in any way constitutional? Isn't it an obvious violation of the Fourth Amendment? You know, you might well think so. Uh, after all, the Fourth Amendment says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable search and seizures shall not be violated. But the Supreme Court in the 1970s said that there may be a national security exception to the Fourth Amendment. It hasn't said definitively that these national security letters are constitutional, but seizing on this possibility of a national security exception, essentially the Bush and now I guess the Obama administration too have allowed the police, the government, to do with these national security letters what they can't do in ordinary investigations and merely by saying that my cell phone records might be relevant to a terrorism investigation those records can be seized and I might not even ever know about it I'm, you know, look, I'm stunned by it. This is the stuff that we used to be outraged by. I mean, without any probable cause. If you got probable cause on somebody, by all means, of course you should do an investigation of them. That's why we have the FBI. That's why we have the authorities. But to say, hey, you know what? I don't know. Professor Rosen looks kind of fishy. Let me go grab all his records. I don't see why any conservative, liberal, or moderate, or any American should be in favor of that. But it gets worse. Senator Wyden is talking about how the government is using the Patriot Act in a secret way we might not even know about. What in the world is that about? 
That was just extraordinary. In the debate over the Patriot Act, Senator Wyden, the Oregon Democrat, said he was very troubled that the government, the Obama administration, had embraced an interpretation of the act that might allow uh, data that had nothing to do with terrorism to be seized. And Wyden wanted to propose an amendment requiring, at the very least, the government to say what its interpretation of the Patriot Act was. But even that simple transparency requirement was too much for his fellow uh, Democrats and Republicans, and they refused to bring that to the vote. You know, really, what's so distressing about this, it shows that the Democrats, the big government Democrats, are no more consistently devoted to civil liberties than the Republicans. There's really a, a small coalition of civil libertarian Democrats, like Senator Wyden, like Senator Russ Feingold, who was the only senator to vote against the Patriot Act the first time around, and then even libertarian conservatives like Rand Paul, who, as you said, really did very good work on this subject. They're the ones who are against this, but the vast majority of Democrats and Republicans are going to let it sail through without any objections. It's just real quick, last question, and I don't know if you can answer this, but why? You know, people say there's no bipartisanship, but this is bipartisanship in the wrong direction. Why do they all agree to do things that seem so unconstitutional? Because it's popular. Uh, Senator John Ashcroft liked to cite a poll that said that 50% of the country thought the Patriot Act was just right, 20% thought it didn't go far enough, and only 20% thought it went too far. That 20% minority are those civil libertarians and libertarian conservatives, but uh, like it or not, it's the sad truth is that uh, majorities of Americans are not troubled by this Patriot Act, and they should be because it could be fixed so easily we could still get the terrorists and also protect civil liberties, as Senator Wyden says. And I really hope that President Obama the former constitutional law professor will think the better of it and at some point fix these dreadful provisions. Right, and you know what? People might change their mind if they knew what was in the Patriot Act and if somebody pointed it out to them. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Here's how Harry Reid demagogued the issue, and he um, went after Rand Paul for the part that was more exploitive, the part about you know, protecting um, gun rights. But there were other things, too. Here's what he said, though, about that. He goes, um, quote, he's fighting for an amendment to protect the right, not of average citizens, but of terrorists to cover up their gun purchases. If he thinks that it's going to be a badge of courage on his side to have held this up for a few hours, he's made a mistake. Paul said that he wasn't supporting terrorists he's supporting the constitution folks that kind of hyperbole though is insulting what u.s senator of any stripe anywhere anytime ever would be supporting the right of terrorists to buy guns that's crazy but it doesn't matter crazy plays well in crazy times i'm happy with paul simply for saying some of the uncomfortable truths that he's saying on television there was a CNN interview that Anderson Cooper did with him, and it's all over YouTube. I'm sure you can find it, um, 
where Anderson Cooper interviews him. And and if I were Anderson Cooper, I would have taken this angle and run with it, but he didn't. Um, let me quote a little bit of the conversation that Paul and Cooper had together the other night, um, May 20th on CNN. Senator Rand Paul says, quote, We go week after week in the Senate and do nothing. I feel like sometimes I should return my check because I go up and they do no votes and no debate. Look at this horrendous debt crisis. We don't debate that either. Anderson Cooper says, really? You feel like that? You feel like you're not doing anything there? And Paul replies, yes, I feel absolutely. We go week to week and there's no debate in Congress, no debate in the Senate. We sit idly by. Some weeks we vote on two or three non-controversial judges and then we go back home. It really, and then Cooper says, why is that? And Paul says, I'm trying to get a vote on Libya. They say they don't have time. I was told when I wanted to bring up my resolution on Libya, which I did force them to, but I had to kind of capture the floor. And Cooper interrupts and says, it got tabled like 90 votes to 10. And Paul says, yeah, they weren't too happy with me because I used some parliamentary procedures to gain access to the floor. And then they came running down to the floor. And they were apoplectic that I'd taken over the floor. And the thing is that we should be having these debates on the floor, meaning the Senate floor. They don't want to have any debates. Paul says, I'm asking right now to vote on Libya. I have a resolution saying we're in violation of the War Powers Act. It's hard for me to get to the floor unless I somehow sneak on the floor when no one's looking to try to get a vote. Why would we not want to debate great constitutional questions? When I ran for office, that's what I thought. There will be great and momentous debates on the floor. Well, we don't have any because they prevent the debates from ever beginning. End quote. That's a rare confirmation of stuff we already told you folks, that we're not even talking about this stuff and that there's almost a concerted effort to avoid talking about this stuff. That's why you have to rush the Patriot Act through as fast as you can. That's why we wait until the last minute so that there is a rush because we don't want to talk about this stuff. Let me back up. They don't want to talk about this stuff. But Feingold and Paul and Wyden and Udall and some of these other people do. They're the ones who are marginalized. I mean, Harry Reid said Rand Paul wants terrorists to have guns and be able to get away with it. Who's the bad guy? You know, when someone's throwing around invectives like that. Back to the New Yorker piece. The New Yorker piece basically goes into some detail about this stuff that these senators are getting up and warning us about that they can't get specific about, right? When Feingold's talking about Section 215, when Wyden's talking about these powers that someday we're going to go and slam senators for not knowing that they'd given the government, what they're talking about is the sort of stuff that this person that the article is about worked on. His name is Thomas Drake. He's an ex-Air Force guy. First of all, Drake is in trouble. The government's going after him. He faces 35 years in jail for being a whistleblower. The kind of guy that Barack Obama said while he was running for office was the best protection our country had against corruption and ineptitude and all that kind of stuff. Now, the article seems to slant toward the idea that Drake didn't do anything wrong. And he's got several supporters within the NSA and various agencies who suggest that he's being targeted and that they were being targeted for making a stink about things that they were taught were important. Remember... The NSA, the Air Force, military intelligence, all these people for a long time have had it drilled into their heads how important things like the Fourth Amendment are. So when you make a policy shift, there are going to be people in these agencies that go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Didn't you always tell us that that was illegal? And that's what happened. And this New Yorker piece makes it clear that the people who said things like that are the people being targeted. Basically, 
What happened was is when the government was looking at computer ways to filter through all the information that's out of there to discover bad guys, they had all sorts of really super intelligent crypto mathematicians working on this sort of stuff. Now, most of these guys tried to produce something that worked within the framework of what we would normally think of as constitutional protections. The government took those things and stripped them away because they didn't care about that. One of the people interviewed for the story, a um, genius named Bill Binney, actually apologizes in the story to the American people for the role he played in inventing this stuff. Here's what he says, quote, Actually, here's what he says as part of the larger article, quoting from the middle of the piece, obviously, since it's a 20-page piece. Quote, Binney expressed terrible remorse over the way some of his algorithms were used after 9-11. Thin Thread, which is um, one of these programs the government uses, the little program that he invented to track enemies outside the U.S., quote, got twisted and was used for both foreign and domestic spying. I should apologize to the American people. It violated everyone's rights. It can be used to eavesdrop on the whole world. When Binney complained... He said he became a target of the National Security Agency's management and became, you know, someone to go after. That's what Drake is in the as the main person in this story. The story's author then continues later in the piece where she talks about how Binney first found out that maybe his algorithms were being used in ways that he'd never intended from page eight of the piece, quote, when Binney heard the rumors, he was convinced that the new domestic surveillance program employed components of Thin Thread, a bastardized version stripped of privacy controls. Binney says, it was my brainchild, he said, but they removed the protections, the anonymization process. When you remove that, you can target anyone. And although he said he was not read in to the new secret surveillance program, my people were brought in and they told me, can you believe they're doing this? They're getting billing records on U.S. citizens. They're putting pen registers, which are logs of dialed phone numbers, on everyone in the country. Drake, the story continues, um, the other principal in this piece, recalled that after the October 4th directive, strange things were happening, he said. Equipment was being moved. People were coming to me and saying, we're now targeting our own country. Drake says that NSA officials who helped the agency obtain FISA warrants were suddenly reassigned. A tip-off that the conventional process was being circumvented. He added, I was concerned that it was illegal and none of it was necessary. In his view, domestic data mining could have been done legally if the NSA had maintained privacy pr protections. But, said Drake, but they didn't want an accountable system. Now, I realize that this is all very out of context and maybe hard to follow. That's what happens when you try to talk about a 20-page story. Like I said, I encourage you to read it yourself. My use of these quotes is meant to do nothing more than to shock you into reading the story. Um, from later in the piece, they quote Binney, talking about what he thinks is going on. Binney, for his part, believes that the agency now stores copies of all emails transmitted in America, in case the government wants to retrieve the details later. In the past few years, the NSA has built enormous electronic storage facilities in Texas and Utah. Binney says that an NSA email database can be searched with dictionary selection in the manner of Google. After 9-11, he says, quote, General Hayden reassured everyone that the NSA didn't put out dragnets, and that was true. He says it had no need. It was getting every fish in the sea, end quote. He says this is exactly what the Founding Fathers never wanted. Binney left the agency, by the way, saying I couldn't be an accessory to subverting the Constitution. 
Now, the article quotes another person who's also in trouble now, simply because essentially they're whistleblowers. Her name is Diane Rourke, a staff member on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, which her job is to oversee the agency, right? Well, she's quoted in this story extensively as figuring out, you know, along the way more and more that this stuff was going on. So she confronted General Michael Hayden, who's in charge of all this stuff specifically, and she recounts her confrontation with him in the story. Quoting from the story on page 11, quote, Rourke, feeling powerless, retired. Before leaving Washington, though, she learned that Hayden, who knew of her strong opposition to the surveillance program, wanted to talk to her. They met at NSA headquarters on July 15, 2002. According to notes that she made after the meeting, Hayden pleaded with her to stop agitating against the program. He conceded that the policy would leak at some point and told her that when it did, she could yell and scream as much as she wished. Meanwhile, he wanted to give the program more time. She asked Hayden why the NSA had chosen not to include privacy protections for Americans. She says that he kept not answering. Finally, he mumbled and looked down and said, quote, we didn't need them. We had the power, end quote. He didn't even look me in the eye, she said. I was flabbergasted. She asked him directly if the government was getting warrants for domestic surveillance, and he admitted that it was not, end quote. The story continues. During the meeting, Rourke says she warned Hayden that no court would uphold the program. Curiously, Hayden responded that he'd already been assured by unspecified individuals that he could count on a majority of the nine votes, an apparent reference to the Supreme Court. According to Rourke's notes, Hayden told her that such a vote might even be seven to two in his favor, end quote. I'm so tempted to just continue to read inflammatory quote after inflammatory quote, but let's do this in context. Go read it yourself. I know it probably doesn't make for scintillating listening to on the show, but this is really important stuff, and it's shocking stuff. It's like I said, you don't mind being a hypochondriac as long as you're wrong. You don't want to be talking about you know, the direction that this country's going and have it be so black and so bleak and be right. The keys to this article, as I see it, though, are not just the disclosures, because you could go read Bamford's book and get a lot of that. It's two things, specifically. One, that there are profoundly principled individuals within this intelligence apparatus of the United States that knows that this stuff is wrong and is trying to help. Just like Wyden and Feingold and Rand and Ron Paul and Udall in Colorado are trying to get the word out to us. In the case of these people inside the intelligence apparatus that are trying to help, they're being targeted. This is very scary stuff, folks. Like I said earlier, when the secrecy begins to cover up the secrecy, it's like a serpent eating its own tail. We can't even know how the government interprets this secret stuff because the interpretation itself is secret. And as I said, what's scary is that we keep counting on our elected officials to help and judging from their comments to us, which, by the way, are made at great personal you know, sacrifice of their own. I mean, a guy like Wyden's not making a whole lot of, you know, hey, doing this. This isn't helping his reelection campaigns. Those guys are asking for our help. That's a scary, scary sign when, you know, people who make up ostensibly, you know, the top 100 most powerful elected officials in the United States of America need our help. I think we were all under the impression that we needed theirs.
Hi, Jay. Chuck in Salt Lake City. Um, I'm hoping that you'll take a second to uh, mention to the listeners that uh, uh, Dan Carlin on his show Hardcore History has just wrapped up his Decline of the Roman Republic series. I think it ended up being like five parts, and the final part was actually a five hour, five and a half hour podcast, which is impressive. But the the reason I bring it up on your show is because, you know, I, I, I think most everybody agrees that knowing your history helps you to have a better informed, a better informed political, you know, stance. And uh, it, listening to this Roman Republic series has really, you know, it, it's, a, it's astonishing how many similarities there are. Uh, you know, the struggles between labor and, 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 uh, and capital and the, the struggles that, uh, that politicians have in making real change. It's all in there, man, and it's all been done before, and it's all happening again, and it sure would be nice if uh, more people would uh, learn their history. Thanks, Jay. Hey, it's Matthew again from San Francisco, uh, calling this time from Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, doing a summer internship that makes me a starving college student, so I can't support the show, or not reasonably at least, Um, but um, I now see that there is a clear way where I can do a lot for the show by sharing now easily individual clips from this show on Facebook and I want to point out to those who who aren't able to to donate um, and who haven't already realized that this is your chance to uh, to really take it away in the name of the left. So uh, please do, and I will. Thanks, Jay. Hi, Jay. It's Steve calling you from Richmond, Virginia. Uh, just finished listening to your latest show. As usual, it's great. I love it. Please keep it up. I realized that uh, I'm not a member. I could never afford to become a member of any podcast, unfortunately. But uh, I'm out here riding my bike in Hanover County, so I'm not at my computer. But I realized that I could easily donate my account on Twitter to you, which I plan to do as soon as I arrive home. And I do do that currently with uh, Sam Cedar, and no complaints there. I love to donate my account and be able to help. As for... uh, the clips and being able to share those on social media, I think it's a great idea, and I've already done so, and I continue to do so, or will continue to do so. Like the guy from Oklahoma said, though, um, I don't think many clips will be completely appropriate, but for different reasons than he said, uh, I want to spread the progressive word, but at the same time, I want to spread it to you know people who need to hear it, not other progressives. So this would go you know, to people I go to church with, uh, my parents. Um, my, my child's teachers, my kids' friends, um, anyone, you know, I can reach out to. And, of course, I could never, you know, post anything about Lee Camp or Citizen Radio, unfortunately. But Jank is great. Uh, Rachel Maddow is great. Well, everybody's great. But those are good clips to trade uh, and to put online, you know, for my more conservative friends to hear and just hear, you know, a different point of view, maybe a more concise point of view, too. So that's all I wanted to say. Um Keep doing, keep providing them. I'll keep doing it, and uh, you know, keep it up. Hey, 
Hey Jay, this is Dean calling from Colorado, and I just wanted to talk about the clip with Charlene Strong. And your goal is to amplify the best of the liberal media, but I think what your listeners need to realize is with the gay and lesbian community, these stories are the American media. It's um, real American people and real American stories. And it's not something that needs to be politicized. It's something that these people need to be need to be treated equally. And so I just want to say thank you for playing that clip because it's not so much a political clip as it is a personal story and one that people need to realize is an American person who needs to be treated as they should be. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Thanks also to everyone who has been uh, engaging and helping share individual clips online. You can do that really easily now by going to bestoftheleft.com. There are buttons to share individual clips from the show on Facebook, Twitter, email, and beyond. And, boy, that last episode, uh, that, that last clip was just made to be shared like this. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. If you heard that clip from Charlene Strong and didn't cry, then I have my questions about you, you know? (laughs) Um, And so, you know, we're just getting started. We're just getting the ball rolling with this sharing program. People are are just kind of getting into the mindset of trying to remember to think about maybe going to the website and actually doing that. And, and even in these very early stages and having, and with that episode having only been up for a couple of days now, that single clip has been shared on Facebook through my website over 160 times, uh, which I think is just fantastic. You know, it bodes very well for, for this idea. And I got immense pleasure out of hearing you know, the comments and seeing the tweets from people talking about how embarrassed they were to be, uh, you know, bawling uncontrollably at their desks while listening to the show, uh, thanks to that clip. And, um, you know, and it's, it's great. It's fantastic. And, it's, and that's the sort of thing when, when something affects you that, uh, emotionally, of course you want to share it. And so it's entirely natural that that's exactly what people have done. So now my story for today is that uh, this morning, uh, Friday, July 15th, the PCCC, everyone calls it that because no one can remember what it stands for, but it starts with progressive and includes the word change and uh, possibly campaign committee, but not necessarily in that order. PCCC at boldprogressives.org, they put together a petition to have people sign, to pledge, to not support Obama's re-election campaign by volunteering their time or donating their money if the administration goes through with plans that are kind of in the works to cut Social Security, Medicare, or Medicaid. And so 200,000 people ended up signing the pledge, and they were delivered this morning to Obama's campaign headquarters in downtown Chicago, and they sent out an email asking if you're in Chicago and you can come join us. Uh, please do. It'll look good for the media and it'll be a great experience. And I thought to myself, well, yes, I can do that. I think I will. So that's what I did this morning. And uh, spoiler alert, it did not go well. 
the uh, the campaign sent uh, representatives to meet us. The COO of the campaign, as well as a couple of staffers, came down into the lobby of their building uh, to meet with about what turned out to be in the neighborhood of 20 PCCC activists. And they didn't look happy about it. And they listened, I assume, attentively at first. And then when it was time to uh, to introduced them to some of the activists themselves. The the press secretary of the PCCC was there, gave the introduction, explained why we were there, and then wanted to introduce a couple of activists to tell their personal stories about how they depend on Social Security, Medicare, and or Medicaid. The woman uh, who came to talk to us received our petition signatures, asked, Okay, is this it? This is what you've come to give us? And he said, yes. And now I'd like to introduce. Uh, and she basically took the papers and walked away without another word, never looked back. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> uh, I, I won't try to delve too deeply into uh, the thinking that went behind that strategy uh, uh, on their part, but um, it was not a pleasant exchange. Let's put it that way. Now, the other perspective was from the media. The media was there, of course, to uh, to witness this. And the question we received more than any other was, okay, so what's your point? So you supported Obama before, and now you're pledging to not support him in the future. So who are you going to support? And the answer to that is that you're kind of missing the point. We, were, you know, want, we want to apply this pressure so that we can support him. We desperately want to. We just are doing everything we can to push him to do what he needs to do to earn our support and our enthusiasm. And, but that was a little bit too nuanced of an answer for the media. So they kept pushing, no, but so, okay, so you follow through on your threat and you don't support him. So then what do you do? Do you vote for a Republican? Do you, you know, what do you, who are you going to support? And, um, and so the answer that I think unfortunately it was not given, but I think should have been, was about the enthusiasm gap. That's what this is all about, is the 2010 election was won enormously by the Republicans because their side was more enthusiastic than the left side. So now for the 2012 election, we want to be that canary in the coal mine to let them know, look, you're going the wrong way. You're you're losing the enthusiasm of your supporters. So when the when the media comes to a group of twenty hardcore progressive activists and says, okay, so what are you going to do? Vote for a Republican? Well, the answer is obviously, well, no, that's silly. And then and then I don't think they actually asked, but if they had asked, are you going to not vote? Well. Again, the answer is, well, no, we're still going to vote. That's silly. What we're pledging to do is withhold our donations and volunteer time. But what that means in the bigger picture is that if the hardcore activists are withholding their activism, what it means is that those people who are you know, maybe Obama supporters, but they're not activists and they're not donors – they are also going to be unenthusiastic in large part. Uh, you know, there's going to be a huge chunk of people who are unenthusiastic about going out to vote, and so they're simply not going to. So the hardcore activists, they're still going to vote, and so asking that question doesn't really drive the point home. Asking, you know, what's the point of, of this pledge is, I think, you know, the answer to that is we're the canary in the coal mine. If we're withholding our activism, 
we're representing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who are simply going to withhold their vote out of apathy. And again, if I didn't say this before, all of the activists who were there today, they wanted to be Obama supporters. They wanted to be, and, and they still do. They just want him to go in the right direction. And as soon as he does, they will become enthusiastic again. And when he does, all of the other people in the country who are potential supporters of his, even if it's only in the capacity of, of voting, they will also become enthusiastic again. So as always, when it comes to this kind of talk, we are not in favor of tearing him down. We're in favor of building him up. We want him to be stronger. We want him to have not only better policies that we all agree with, but the incremental approach he's taking um, and sometimes the flat out wrong direction he's taking is hurting him in the policy realm and the political realm. He's actually diminishing his own chances of being reelected by doing policy moves that are you know, against everyone's best interest. So that is it for today. This has gone on way too long as it is. I want to thank all the volunteers, Mike Collette, Todd, Joe, Laura, Emerson, and Lauren. And uh, also thank a couple of members, Tamara H., who signed up for a leftist yearly membership back on December 22nd, and Lynn M., who signed up for a socialist monthly membership back on October 14th. And uh, both of those members have stuck with the show since then. Huge thanks to all of them, all of the members and donors who make the show possible. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fond farewell to a friend